You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. Um, 1 Peter 4, 1-11. Let's go right into it because it might, might be a little bit longer today. Um, 1 Peter 4, 1-11. Let's, let's do this. It's Peter talking to the Christians in the area around Asia Minor. This is what he says to them. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Some words I never thought I would say in public in front of a hundred people. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you called Peter, the apostle Peter, the rock, Lord God, to, to write this letter, Lord God, not only for the Christians then, but for us today, even now, Lord God. And I pray that as we go through it, that you would reveal yourself in, in a greater way, Lord God, that you would teach us who we're called to be in you, Lord God, and, and that you would be glorified through it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I always think to myself before I'm planning a sermon, you know, I'm just going to do a lighthearted, real encouraging sermon, and then, and then I read the passage and subject matter, and I'm like, oh, it's going to be intense. Always. Um, we'll start with a lighthearted story, though. When I was in high school, I worked at McDonald's, that McDonald's over there. And um, I worked the night shift with a bunch of teenagers my, my age, of course. And teenagers, as we know, can sometimes be rebellious, right? Um, for example, sometimes uh, they'd go clean the play area. Like after, after closing, they'd go clean the play area, but which really meant they'd go to the top and take a nap. Or the supervisor couldn't see them. Sometimes downstairs there was a giant syrup dispenser for the pop, right? And, and sometimes um, some, some, some of us would throw, I mean some of them, would throw tomatoes behind it so they would get rotten, you know. Um, that's what happens behind the scenes at McDonald's. Uh, and sometimes some of them would go smoke up before their shift. And by smoke up, I mean, I mean the weed. The, the pot, right? And and one time in particular, a couple 
a couple of my coworkers approached me all excited and they were like, you know, and I kid you not, this, this felt like straight out of a, you know, a drug prevention commercial. They, 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 they were like, hey, Greg, we got our hands on this joint and we're going to go get high next to the dumpster. You want to join in? And um, I was like, no, no, thanks. Right. Just whatever. No, thanks. You go. You guys do your thing. And at my simple decline, it was it was kind of hilarious when I look back now, when I think back of it now, because they, they just got all shocked and confused. And I'm not kidding. They were seriously surprised. And they're like, what? What do you mean? You don't smoke weed? Like, you don't talk the reaper? Like, what? And, and, and I'm like, I'm like, no. Right? I don't. Right? And let's be honest, their surprise probably came more from the fact that I looked like someone who would and did smoke pot, as you can see by my picture. I'm not holding uh, pot in my other hand, I swear. Um, hey, guys, uh, elephant. Um, anyone have any chips? Um, <laughs> but secondly, they were probably surprised. That's a hair. <sighs> I didn't. I'm not high right now either. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> Secondly, they were probably surprised because smoking weed, even though it was illegal, was, is kind of a social norm among teenagers and has been since the 60s, right? And, and we all know the mantra, you know, everybody's doing it, right, and all that. It's a cheesy phrase, but it's still true, right? Peer pressure carries a lot of weight. Um, so in their minds, they're thinking, what, what do you mean you don't? You know, I don't get it. Every, everyone's doing it, right? What's the problem? And, of course, the answer to why I didn't do it was because of my faith, but also, again, because it was illegal. Um, but from their perspective, no matter what the reason, all of a sudden, to them, I became this, this prude, right? A holier-than-thou, goody-two-shoes, this Christian kid. They probably thought that I thought I was better than them, which I didn't, uh, which is why... You know, I, I know that I'm the same as them, which is why I need Jesus. He's better, right? But of course, they don't know that, so they made fun of me anyways because I didn't go smoke weed with them. I wasn't too offended by that, but that's, that's the way the story went. And while that's a simple and cliche example, it was true, but still cliche, the point is that as Christians, there are and will constantly be moments like that in our lives where we'll be forced to have to make that choice, Right? to join in with the world and have a moment of, of fleeting fun or personal satisfaction or social acceptance, or to instead faithfully follow Christ and possibly be mocked for it. And Peter's plea for the Christians he's writing to in our passage this morning is centered around that choice. And I think it echoes this verse very well from 1 Thessalonians 5.5, which says, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. As Christians, we're no longer citizens of this world. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. And Peter's reminding his readers again, and now us, that we're called to live as citizens of the kingdom, right? We're called to be different. We're called to live holy. And that even though the world might mock us for it, or think we're weird for it, or try to convince us to join in with them and in their ways, we won't and don't need to, and won't want to, Because we have a truer joy and a deeper hope of life and satisfaction than the the world could ever give us and the world could ever provide, right? So let's start at verse 1 and 2, and we'll kind of flesh that out. Verses 1 and 2. 
he says to the Christians, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. All right, Jesus suffered in the flesh to avoid and ultimately destroy sin, our sin, right? We talked about that last week at the Easter weekend, right? Death and resurrection. He took our sin upon himself. He conquered it. And so we, as his followers, should be ready to do the same. To be willing to suffer if needed in order to avoid sinning. That's what it means when it says that those who've suffered in the flesh have ceased from sin. You know, that's not a blanket statement for everybody, right? We all suffer in the flesh. We all end up dying. But it's referring to followers of Jesus who'd rather choose suffering than than to fall back into their old nature, into their old lives of sin. In fact, in many situations, our suffering then, as a result of our faith, is often proof and evidence of of our desire to glorify God with our new lives, no matter what the cost no matter what the temptation, just as Jesus did for us. Right? He's our example here. So he's our strength and our example. And Peter's encourage, encouragement for us here then is that if we're armed with the mind of Christ, if we're prepared to live for him in any circumstance, then we won't get pulled back into the ways of, of the world. We won't get pulled back into our old uh, sinful Lives wandering around in the darkness, right? Following the course of this world, as it says in Ephesians. Instead, as it says in Christ, we're called while we're on this world. As long as we're in the flesh, that's what it means. As long as we're in the flesh, we're, we're called to live no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. We're children of the light. We're no lo- we no longer belong to the darkness. And let's be honest, it, this isn't easy to do live this life, right? Because we are in the world. So it's easy to become of the world. And just like the Christians Peter's writing to, we, we, we do live in a very individualistic and self-seeking, self-gratifying society. Right? A society and culture that constantly cries out, I can do or buy what I want. If it feels right to me, I'll do it. You know, my body, my choice. No one can tell me what to do. If I think it's right, then it's right. Right? That's the type of society we live in. And so it's easy to get sucked back into that way of thinking and start thinking like that. Because it's usually instantly and and, and personally gratifying in that moment. Right? And the the temptation to satisfy our selfish passions is, is around every corner. Right? Is at every turn. Every time we open the computer. Right? Everywhere we look. But even more than that, when the world makes fun of us or even threatens us for not taking part or not agreeing with them in their lifestyles, that certainly doesn't feel good, right? It doesn't feel good to get made fun of, even if we say it doesn't. You know, it it does actually hurt to get maligned, as the passage says. And there's definitely an easy way out from being mocked, right? Which is to make sure you don't do something that will get yourself mocked, right? And so it's easy to just give in to that and decide instead to just support them or even join in with them just so we don't get made fun of. So Peter's encouraging his readers, first of all, by saying, remember that because of Jesus, that life of sin is behind you. You've been freed from it. 
Instead, arm yourselves with the mind of Christ so that you can resist it no matter what. And first, first Peter 4, 3 says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. I love that he says that, that these things are behind them, right? The time, the time, for the time that is past suffices for that stuff, right? It's, it's behind you, right? It's a glorious reality that Jesus' grace and love that's poured out for us causes both our sin and our sinful desires to be left in the past, right? Forgiven, that they're gone, they're no longer to be remembered. Through Jesus' perfect work, we've been made new. And I love that. It's amazing. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Right? It's in the past. Behold, the new has come. We've been made new. We're new creatures. Right? And this is also a, a very important reminder for all of us as well that this passage here isn't, isn't about pleasing God by avoiding these sins. We often read, read the passage this way because, first of all, without Christ, we're all guilty sinners, right? And, and I say that this is important because isn't that what we often do as Christians? We, we, we have our list of do-nots, right? We're, as, Christians, as Christians, we're not allowed to do this. 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 We have all these lists, right, of do-nots. And then we argue with each other over over if our list is right or if your list is right or what we're allowed to do versus what we're not allowed to do as Christians. We're like, oh, we're, we're allowed to have wine because Jesus did, because he made wine at that one party, right? But only two glasses, right? But, but, and you can't drink beer, but you can go on a bar, but only if you're witnessing and, and not, but, but not if it makes somebody stumble. Like if you're going to make someone stumble, then you can't go in the bar because then they might be offended. And if you offend them, then you're sinning against them. So then you can only eat vegan, right? And, and, and that's, that's what Christians sound like. Am I wrong? Right? Too, too much we sound like that. We, we don't understand sin. And that causes a lot of problems. Right? Here's the actual problem with sin. Usually is that we take good things, God-created things that are meant to be good and even enjoyable for us, like sex, like wine, like entertainment, and then we distort them. And then we turn them into idols, and we turn them into objects for our self-indulgence, or we, we turn them into things that will replace them over God as our satisfaction, or, or we twist them into something that God didn't design them for, and they no longer reflect his glory and his beauty. That's what Peter's list is about. They've taken good, God-honoring things and twisted them into human and idol-glorifying things. And so my point is that if our old life is in the past through Christ, and if that's truly who we no longer are anymore, then that means we're no longer living to, to gratify the desires of our flesh, Right? We're no longer seeking after ourselves anymore. We're no longer trying to walk the line of how close to sin we can get. But we're completely jumping over the line in the other direction and asking instead, or rather passionately desiring, to seek after the will and glory of God above all else. 
That's our motivation now if we're in Christ. Christians that are armed with the mind of Christ don't ask, you know, what, what we're not allowed to do or, or how close to the line we can get without sinning. Instead, they ask what God wants them to do and how far we can go to honor him. But not only that, if we, if we revert back to choosing sin over choosing Christ, what that means is that we're, we're also choosing to be judged once again on our standards, on the world's standards, rather than on Jesus Christ. Well, that's not a good thing, by the way. Only through him are we righteous. That's why I think Peter contrasts our hope with that of the unbelievers when he says in verses 5 and 6, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They being the people that are mocking the Christians and living worldly lives. They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, which is Jesus. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So Peter doesn't want us to revert back to our sinful nature Because then we'd be choosing the same fate as those who have to give an account for their sin and and to those who mock believers. That's also an encouragement for us as Christians, too, that that we don't have to retaliate against them because they they will give an account in the end. But then contrast to that is through Jesus, that, yeah, the, the world might judge us. We might be judged in the flesh. But ultimately, we're judged according to Jesus' work. Right? That's the gospel. That's the good news of salvation. And this is the same hope that Peter writes that as, as that of the Christians who have already died for their faith, probably, probably through persecution. He's saying we have the same hope as those Christians. Because they, even though they've, they've died for their faith, faith, they've been raised up with Christ in eternal life to hang out with God for eternity. Right? When we choose Jesus, we have hope in resurrection life. When we choose the world... We have no hope. We have to give an account. But we may get to have that fleeting moment of satisfying our lust. So I I don't know. Eternity with God or a couple of fleeting moments of satisfying our lust? Eternity with God, fleeting moment. To me, that's an easy choice. Again, the past sufficed for all those sinful ways. It's gone. It's in the past. But because of Jesus, our present and future, even after death, can now be lived out in freedom for the glory of God. And I want to say, though, to say, though that if you're someone who's, who's constantly chosen those fleeting moments, or constantly chosen the world over Jesus... And now you think, well, I'm too guilty, or I'm too ashamed, or I'm too dirty, or I'm too, too unworthy to repent now. You know, I've messed up. That's it for me. That's not true. Again, we're, we're all sinners, all unworthy. That's why Jesus died for us, to make us worthy. And so I promise you that if you repent, and if you turn back to Jesus, what repent means, turn back to Jesus, turn away from that sin, leave it in the past, turn back to Jesus, he'll forgive you the moment you do. And that's the point. This is about Jesus. 
This is about Jesus. This isn't about us making ourselves pure and acceptable for God. That's impossible. It's about how Jesus makes us pure and empowers us to live that life. This is about arming ourselves with Jesus, his righteousness, his grace, first of all, and then arming ourselves with the same mind as we live for him. That's what Peter's really doing here as well. He's showing us how to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. And he's doing that by reminding us and focusing our attention on the gospel. Right? Blair talked about this a couple weeks ago, how, how we need to know what we believe, right? We're ready to give an account for our faith, ready to share the gospel with the world. And that's just as important for us as individuals, too, in both living for God and in resisting worldly temptation. We need to know the gospel. We need to be reminded of it, be armed with the mind of Christ, right? Studying the depths and reminding ourselves of that, of the gospel and the word, or how we do that, or how we arm ourselves with the mind of Christ, along with prayer and building one another up, of course, which we'll get to in a moment. But it's only by standing on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ that we'll keep from, from stumbling and crumbling and falling in the storm. And there will be storms. That's guaranteed there will be storms. In this case, Peter's even saying one of those storms is that will be mocked or maligned. In fact, Peter's honest and realistic here when he says in verse 4, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Peter writes that the the unbelievers there will be surprised and shocked when when Christians choose not to take part in their their activities. This is because back then, their activities weren't debauchery to them. It it was a way of life for them. It's normal and acceptable social behavior, all the stuff they took part of. Self-seeking pleasures, drunken parties, orgies, satisfying the desires of the flesh, so to speak. All those things weren't sinful or wrong to them in their culture, but natural expressions of feeling and emotion. And some some of those things they did were even considered worshipful to their gods and to their idols and in their celebration of Caesar. And I think that's the same type of argument that many in our culture would make today, right, in regards to sexuality or or pornography or, or drunkenness or even our obsession with investing in self-seeking entertainment, right? That's the argument that we make, right? This isn't wrong. This is just normal. It's just an expression of, of my emotions and, and who I am. It makes me feel good, right? It makes me happy. So for those early Christians that choose not to take part in what everyone else in their culture deemed as normal, well, that would certainly seem strange and, and unnatural to everyone else, right? And even in some ways insulting to them. One of my commentaries wrote that to choose not to take part in the Greco-Roman lifestyle, especially the worship of Caesar and their gods, would be like an American refusing to sing the national anthem, right? Both surprising and insulting to other Americans. See? Yeah. I I didn't use the Canadian anthem in that because we'd be like, oh, sorry that we, we have an anthem, you know? You don't have to sing it. But Americans... 
They'll be like, what do you mean you're not singing the anthem? Get out of my country, right? Like, Americans are really, like, intense on that. You know, America, right? Um, so I think the surprising part as well would come from the fact that most of these Christians, they probably, they would have grown up in that culture, you know, uh, with all their friends and family taking part in all these activities, right? And so, and so now all of a sudden they're declining and they're uninterested, right? And so I can definitely see how, how, how their friends and neighbors could easily take that as a personal slight to them and their way of life and, and, and then react negatively as a result. Like, what do you mean you don't want to? You don't like us anymore? You, you don't want to be one of us anymore? Well, screw you then, right? So we, we need to be prepared as Christians for that reaction from the world as well. We don't need to look for it, right? We don't need to create that reaction from the world. But we need to be ready to face those situations if they come. And to face them with, with faith and grace, with the mind of Christ. We need to arm ourselves, right? A soldier doesn't arm himself in the middle of battle, right? That would be stupid. But he does it before the battle, right? He prepares. We need to be prepared to choose not to give in to fear of man, not to give in to, to mockery to choose by faith to live for God because that's who we are now. We need to know that as we go into the world. We need to remind ourselves that we have a lasting joy and satisfaction in Jesus so we don't need anything that the world offers. We need to remind ourselves continually that he's raised us up high above our station. So we don't need to lift ourselves up. Or we don't need anyone else's approval to do it, to lift us up. And we need to remind ourselves that because we have that hope that Jesus is soon coming again, and he's going to take us with him in eternal life. That's what Peter means when he writes next in the passage, that the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. And please don't mistake this quote uh, to mean that Peter's standing on a soapbox and, you know, in the middle of a city with a sandwich sign hanging over his head, like the panic-ridden crazies you might see in New York, right? Running around telling everyone the world is ending. That's not what this means. When Peter says the end of all things is at hand, it's simply a reminder for all Christians that we're living in anticipation of Jesus coming again. We're awaiting the day when Jesus returns to restore heaven and earth, to rid the world of sin once and for all, to restore heaven and earth and us with it, right? Peter's already written in chapter 3 that nobody knows when that day will come. He says, I'll come like a thief, right? And, and even Peter himself knew that he would die, actually, before that day came. Jesus told him he would, he would die for his faith. So Peter knew that he would die before that day came. So he's not saying that the end of all things is, is at hand. He's not saying it's tomorrow, tomorrow or whatever. Right? He's saying we're living in anticipation of Jesus' return. And so, because we have that hope, right, we, we should be living for him as we live in anticipation. That's our calling as Christians. Right? That's our calling as Christians to live for God. And again, if we're armed with the mind of Christ, we'll joyfully and passionately desire to live it out until Jesus comes. And speaking of callings, 
the word callings. You know, I've had many conversations with people, some good, some good conversations uh, with people over the years about our callings. Right? And people ask me, what's my calling? I'm just trying to figure out my calling. And that's an important question. Right? And it shows that we desire to, to follow the will of God in our lives. And we, you know, we want to do what God wants us to do. But also a question that a lot of the time gives us a lot of anxiety, right? A lot of anxiety because we're like, I don't know what my calling is. I don't, I don't know what to do. And I think that's because we mistakenly interpret our calling to be, first of all, only concerning ourselves as individuals. That's where we make the first mistake, that our calling is only about me. And then secondly, we, mis- we mistakenly interpret our calling to be simply what, we, what God wants us to do for work, right? It's just our vocation. Or maybe even sometimes we think it's a, a third world country that we're called to go to or something, right? And in some cases, yes, our callings can be our vocation or, or a place, but not always. Not always. But what is always the case when it comes to our callings as Christians, is what we see in the next part of this passage. It's very plainly, it's twofold. One, our calling is to be faithful and obedient to God in our lives, whatever we're doing, wherever we're at. And second, our calling as Christians is to benefit others, not only ourselves. And of course, all of it is for the purpose of proclaiming Christ for the glory of God which is also our church's passion statement, by the way. Because we believe it. That's why we're here. To be faithful and obedient to God. To benefit others. For the glory of God. If we're armed with the mind of Christ, if that's our perspective, if that's our worldview, the mind of Christ then we'll desire to live out that calling, whether we're, we're working at McDonald's like I was, right? Or whether we're on a mission trip, or whether we're married, or whether we're single, or whether we're young, or whether we're old, whether we're jobless, or whether we're a CEO, whether we're in ministry, or whether we're not in ministry, this is our calling as Christians. So I'm going to read through this passage, and I want you guys to receive this, right? This is our job description, This is how we're supposed to live daily. 1 Peter 4, 7 to 11. 7, 11. Every time you see a 7, 11, be reminded of this. First Peter 4, 7 to 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So again, how are we called to live our lives as Christians? I'm going to go through each of those points one by one really quickly. Most of them are self-explanatory. 
but I want to go through them again so that we, we know them, so that we remember them, so that we remember to live them. So number one, our calling as Christians, as children of the light, right, is number one, to live with self-control and with sober minds. Self-control and sober minds. Obviously, these are the opposite characteristics of the drunkenness and letting our emotions lead us, right, that he was talking about before. God's not trying to suppress our fun. Every time we think, oh, we're not allowed to, we're not allowed to get drunk, God just doesn't want us to have any fun, right? God's not trying to suppress our fun by, by telling us to remain sober. He's saving our lives in this regard. He's keeping us focused. He's keeping us awake. Because these characteristics are key because it's impossible to be watchful for Jesus and anticipate Jesus coming. It's impossible to be on guard in our faith or to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ or to seek God's will for our lives or or to serve others or to be ready to proclaim the kingdom of God if we're not sober and if we're not awake. Right? If we don't have clear minds to focus, we can't do any of those things. And we especially can't pray and turn our hearts to God. Which leads us to the second part of living our lives for Christ, which is in prayer. In prayer. I know I've said this before, but none of us pray enough. We need to be praying more. The Apostle Paul writes that we should never cease in our praying. In everything and in every moment, God should and wants to be part of the conversation. And this is also a way that we remain connected with God and continually arm ourselves with his truths, right? As we, as we pray his truths, we become more confident in them. We become more reminded of them, right? And as we talk to God and grow in our relationship with him, the more we'll want to serve him over and above ourselves. The more we'll love him, the more we'll want to honor him, right? We need to be praying. Number three, we're called to love one another. Above all, he says, above all, love one another. And this is a Christ-like love. I was at um, a Youth One event last night. I don't know if you've heard of Youth One. It's a youth center, and they, and they, they help youth out. You know, they hang out with them. They give them a place to hang out, and, and they, they help them with jobs and resumes, too, and all that kind of stuff, right? It's a great place. And, and their, their theme of, it was a fundraiser last night, and the theme of the event was radical love. And they had testimonies from all these youth that, that have gone through there and how their lives have been changed. And each and every time, they said it's because of the relationships, because of the way that they loved us unconditionally. They didn't care where we came from. They didn't care who we were. You know, what we did or whatever. We came there and they were loved on. Right? We need to love like that. We need to love each other like that. Just as Jesus loved us. This is a humble and sacrificial love that puts others before ourselves. A deep and unwavering love for one another in the church and even outside the church, right? Especially outside the church. We need to love our neighbors as well. But we're talking about inside the church. You always know when a church body isn't practicing love for one another. Because all you hear in the church is bickering and rumors and complaining and judging, right? But as Peter writes, love covers a multitude of sins. That doesn't mean if you love someone, then, 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 you're sin, then you can keep sinning. That's not what that means. 
What it means is that it's much easier to forgive and forget when we sin against each other and when we make mistakes. If we're committed to loving one another as Christ loved us above all. That's a huge part of our calling as Christians. Love. And that moves into number four. We're called to be hospitable. And this is the important and challenging part. Without grumbling. We're called to be hospitable without grumbling. If you're grumbling, that means you have the wrong attitude, right? But being hospitable, we're to share and host and open our lives to each other. Share our food, our clothes, our money, our emotions, our burdens, our joys, the roofs over our heads with one another, wash each other's feet, so to speak, care for one another, even those of us whom we don't know very well. Doesn't matter how well we know each other. We're called to be hospitable to one another. And if we're armed with the mind of Christ, instead of this feeling like a chore, we'll actually see opportunities to care for each other as exactly that opportunities. And we'll do it joyfully for His glory. Remember that He did it for us. Now, not saying that it'll be easy. That's not easy being hospitable sometimes. Right? It can be challenging, it can be tiring, it can be humbling but it'll be fulfilling and Christ-glorifying if we have the right attitude. If we've armed ourselves with the mind of Christ. And this also brings us to the next part of our calling as Christians. Fifth point here, we're called to use our gifts to serve each other. Right? The Apostle Paul talks about this in more detail in 1 Corinthians, but the message is the same. Through the Holy Spirit... We've been given gifts, and not for showing off, not just for our own personal and or individual growth, right? But for the primary purpose of building one another up and serving one another in the church. Our God-given gifts, or spiritual gifts, whatever you want to call them, are given to us so that we can be God's stewards, so that we can be God's hand and voice amongst each other. Right? As a church, we're like one big Swiss army knife. Right? And we're each a different and unique piece that God's, that, God's, that God's called and created to use as he sees fit. So, sorry if I sound blunt here. I'm a lot like my wife in that regard. She was emceeing earlier. But if we're not using our gifts to serve others, then we're not living according to our calling. And maybe that's because you don't know what your gift is. Well, then start serving. In the church, start, start praying about it, and you'll start discovering what your, what your gift is. And I know some of us might be afraid to use our gifts, because we're like, oh, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to use my gifts. Or, you know, especially if they're the kind of gifts where, where you have to step out in faith and, and risk embarrassment. Well, people might think I'm weird. But to that, again, I echo Peter here when he says, arm yourselves with the mind of Christ. And then boldly move in faith and do what God's called you to do, even if you might be made fun of. Because we need your gifts here. We need what God's given you here. We need your gifts to help this church grow and mature and advance. And number six, six point our calling, we're called to live as Christians by the strength of God. This is a very important point because we can do nothing that I've already mentioned unless 
It's through the strength of God, unless he is working in us for his good will. And too often a message like this will be, will be misinterpreted as, oh, I guess I have to do a bunch of work in order to please God and so I don't lose my salvation, right? It's the same as, as the other thing I was talking about. We, we have our list of do nots and our list of do's and we, we check them off, right? This, not what this is about. This is about our heart and our attitude of surrender to God because he saved us. And so Peter's reminding us that we work not in our own strengths, but from the strength of God through Jesus Christ, right? And the power of the Holy Spirit within us. And not to earn God's favor, but because we have his favor. Therefore, we, we can know and be confident that in whatever God's called us to do, whatever God's called us to say, that he will strengthen us through it as we faithfully move into that. And this also means that, that whatever we do and say as well should be for the glory of God and for the building up of others. That's only common sense. And this brings us to the final point in regards to our calling as Christians. It underlines it all. Number seven, we're called to glorify God through Jesus Christ, which we already talked about. Everything we do, everything we say, we're called to bring glory to God as lights of Jesus Christ. So, all right, we've gone through what it looks like to live as citizens of the kingdom of God in this world. It's not a complicated list. But to be blunt, once again, if we don't desire to live this way, if we're not passionate about being constant in prayer, about selflessly loving and serving and, and giving and using our gifts to build one another up and seeking to glorify God in everything we do, That doesn't mean we need to start doing it. It means we need to do some work in arming ourselves with the mind of Christ. That's where it starts. I think church is good for that. Right? Because we remind ourselves of the gospel through song and prayer and through communion and through the reading of the word and, and, and sometimes even through the message, sometimes, I'm making fun of myself. You can laugh. Um, (laughs) But Sunday alone is not enough to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. Right? Sunday alone is not enough. You can't come to church and then be like energized from church because that's just going to run out. If we're not continually reminding ourselves, we're going to forget. We're going to get, you know, caught up in the world again. Then we come to church again and then get re-energized and then uh, run out. That's not how our Christian lives are supposed to work. We need to be arming ourselves with the mind of Christ daily so that we can resist temptation to fall back, so that we can endure persecution or or being mocked, and finally so that we can continually live for him and anticipate his return with passion and excitement and joy. We need to be arming ourselves with the mind of Christ because this is who we are now. We're children of the day and light, right? We no longer belong to the darkness. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you have saved us, Lord. Lord, as it says in Ephesians, we are wandering around in the darkness, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, Lord. We are trapped in our sin, you know, seeking for ourselves, 
But nothing ever satisfied, Lord. But Jesus, you came and you took your sin upon you, our sin upon yourself, Lord. And you covered us in your righteousness, Lord. And you completely satisfied us. Lord, you are the bread of life. You completely satisfy. And you are all we need, Lord. And so, Lord, as we remember that truth, as we remember that truth, Lord God, I pray that you would keep us from temptation, Lord. That you would help us live the life that you've called us to live, Lord. That you would strengthen us. That you would embolden us to go forward in faith into what you've called us to, Lord. To shine as lights for your name, Jesus. To glorify God in this world. What an amazing calling that is, Lord God. God, let us not be afraid. Of, of being made fun of or, or looking weird. Let us not let that fear turn us away from you, Lord God, and turn us away from following this glorious life that you've called us to, Lord God. But, but move in us. Stir in our hearts a passion for your name and to live for you in an even greater way, Lord God. Remind us continually that you are coming again, that we do have a sure hope, Lord. And I pray for those here this morning that don't know you, Lord God, or that do know you but have, but have turned from you, Lord God. I pray that this morning that you would just draw them to yourself, draw them to the cross, that they may, they may be able to repent and turn back to you, Lord God, and be freed from their sin, that they may know this life of freedom, that they may know this glorious life that you've called us to. Jesus, we praise your name. We thank you for this church, for the way you're working in each of our hearts, Lord. We give you all the glory. Amen.